Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Robert Califf, Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. He talks about the agency's huge mission to protect drug and food safety, legal challenges to long-approved medications, and the quest to combat misinformation in today's public health arena. I think this is one of the most important problems we faced. I've publicly said I think misinformation is actually the leading cause of death in America now. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Abortion rights have eroded in America since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And right now, we're seeing some of the starkest examples of this reality. Our guest is one of the persons keeping patient safety front and center. Dr. Robert Califf is an accomplished cardiologist and scientist. In his second stint as the FDA commissioner, he previously served as the FDA commissioner under President Barack Obama. Commissioner Califf, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Good to be here. Yeah, you know, we'll start with the breaking news about the bans on abortion medication, which is the choice of approximately half of all terminations in the country. 22 years ago, as you know, the FDA approved a medical abortion regimen for up to 10 weeks into pregnancy. Now Wyoming has become the first state to explicitly ban their use and the mail order option may be at risk uh, in Wyoming. I'm wondering what the Biden administration or what your thoughts are uh, in terms of uh, communicating on this? Mark, um, unfortunately, uh, in a case of pending lit litigation as it relates to FDA, I'm not really able to say much about it. I'll just comment, you know, the FDA did its review over 20 years ago. The science is unchanged. Um, our decisions uh, are unchanged at this point. But because there is pending lit litigation, we'll have to uh, wait and see what the courts have to say. Commissioner, uh, as I think about that, uh, there was a number of years that went into that decision 22 years ago. Maybe talk a little bit about the the rigor that went into that decision uh, back uh, 22 years ago. Well, all, all of our decisions are based on the best available science. Um, the data um, come in, they're evaluated by civil servants who have no vested interest in any, uh, they're not political appointees. I'm a political appointee, I'm the commissioner. So those decisions are made by career civil servants who um, are assessing the science. So um, science and medicine is uh, what we uh, go by and uh, that's where we were 20 years ago and where we still are today. Right. Well, commissioner, if I could just pick up on that for a moment, uh, FDA approved really means something to all of us, I want you to know out in the world of uh, practicing uh, healthcare, whether it's primary care where we are or cardiology, where I, I know uh, the focus of your uh, clinical career has been. Um, but I, I think people often are confused about where the sort of boundaries end with some of these things. Uh, my understanding is once the FDA has weighed in on safety and effectiveness, right, the, the two uh, big issues that it's, it's not something that can be overturned externally. And um, I, I guess the question is, do you have the regulatory discretion uh, to avoid enforcing a ruling that goes against what the FDA has included? Just edu educate our listeners about that. I, I'm afraid I can't really get into the details here because, um, you know, they're separate branches of government. The judiciary is different than the executive branch, and there could be a variety of different circumstances. Um, but 
we so that, that's really all I can say about it while the while the litigation is pending. And you know, I, we appreciate that, and uh, we have a lot of topics to talk about. But I I do think uh, it was sort of an unprecedented act uh, where Walgreens indicated that they were not going to make uh, the drug available in 31 states. Um, I'm wondering your own thoughts about pharmaceutical companies or you know the, the large manufacturers deciding which states they can sell FDA approved, forgetting what the, this particular drug, but just as a precedent, I guess, does that, has that happened in any yeah. other case? And, um, well, I, I do appreciate your interest and I do have personal opinions, but in my role, I can't really comment on these things at this point. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, I look forward to talking about it later. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we we look forward to future conversations, and obviously we're we're following it closely. But you do have a enormous uh, span of issues that you're responsible for, and one of them that I'm not sure uh, the public has always understood is that you have uh, oversight of infant formula uh, manufacturers, and certainly very much in the news this year uh, was that the plants have been plagued by bacterial outbreaks. I think that's led to some shortages uh, in some areas. Uh, you've proposed changes to the agency's human foods program uh, to address the problem. Uh, tell us what you're doing and does more need to be done even than the next steps? Well, I'm glad to uh, talk about this. Infant formula, of course, is a very precious component of a very large food system that we have. The food ecosystem that we regulate has over 600,000 entities. I was just on a call this morning about uh, imported seafood safety, for example, where uh, over uh, somewhere between 70 and 95% of our seafood that we eat in the U.S. comes from overseas. So it's a vast set of responsibilities that we have. But of course, infant formula is special because infants can be totally dependent uh, on formula. And um, as we ran into the problems that we had with contamination of a plant with bacteria um, of one manufacturer that was the dominant manufacturer in infant formula. Um, we had to stop production in that plant um, and entered into a consent decree with uh, Abbott to oversee the restart, which took several months. That led to a shortage. And it also uh, surfaced a lot of issues within our human foods program. I have to say, uh, upon being nominated, as you know, this is my second time around at FDA. Mm -hmm. The first time uh, was relatively brief before the election. I got a lot of calls from inside and outside the agency that the foods program needed uh, more attention and support. So I was ready for it, but it turned out that recall at Abbott was on the day I was confirmed. So I was presented wow. <laughs> with this right from the beginning. Um, what we're doing is restructuring uh, the whole program to upfit it for the future. But one really important point to make, um, which we didn't talk about much um, right about the time I was confirmed, because we were in the middle of a crisis with infant formula that we needed to handle first. The economists did uh, an, an assessment of all the countries in the world, and we uh, came in third, right neck and neck with Canada and Finland, for the safest and highest quality food in the world. Unfortunately, availability, we didn't come in so high as a country. And as you know, there are many factors beyond the assessment of quality and safety, which is our mandate that come into play there. We have many inequities um, in this country that 
we need to deal with. And so uh, we're really putting a lot more effort and energy into the program. We're elevating nutrition. Uh, we're losing millions of Americans to chronic diseases that have a nutritional basis, as you well know. Yeah. And we're also um, getting support from Congress to beef up our infant formula program. We don't make infant formula. We can't tell companies to make it. But we have a marketplace right now, which is um, heavily concentrated and not diverse enough, and in which we had very little ability to get insight into the production that was going on. All the companies are now collaborating, and our in-stock rates are back up to where they were before the recall. But there's a lot more to be done. Commissioner, the diabetes drug, uh, Wagovi, is uh, FDA approved for treating obesity. And there's concern about the side effects, even with the FDA approval and uh, acknowledged obesity issues in the country. Are, are the side effects worth it in your mind uh, to prescribe it if, uh, as, as a physician? Uh, what, what would you be prescribing? <laughs> You keep drawing me into this tricky position of I'm FDA commissioner, so um, I have to be careful about being too opinionated right now yeah. uh, relative to the role of the FDA. But I have a few things to say about this. Um, you know that we, and uh, more than almost any other country, are suffering from this enormous amount of obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, hundreds of thousands of teenagers now with type 2 diabetes. And the biology of um, the weight gain that we've experienced as a country has been poorly understood. And I think as much as anything else, these new classes of drugs are giving us insight into mm -hmm. something that a few scientists knew about, but most of us were oblivious to, which is that mm -hmm. the connection between the gut and the brain that uh, affects our appetite is a complex neurohormonal connection. And so these drugs, um, intervene in those pathways. And what I would say is that um, obviously uh, the FDA has found um, one of the drugs to be safe and effective, not only for diabetes, but also obesity. And there's another one which uh, the data will come in soon from a, uh, large trials that will give us the insight that we need to have. Um, I feel like this is going to be the beginning of a revolution in the way that we uh, control weight, not just with the pills, but because we'll understand the biological mechanisms better. There'll probably be multiple therapeutic approaches, including better uh, use of the integration of digital technologies and um, uh, and uh, medicines. So uh, would I prescribe it now, um, uh, you know, safe and effective for the intended population? I think the biggest issue in front of us is going to come from very large trials that are underway about people that have obesity but don't have diabetes. Mm -hmm. And in that population, the results of those trials will tell us what we need to do. If they, if you have a reduction in death, a reduction in disability due to orthopedic conditions or cardiovascular events, then by all means, um, on average, the benefits will outweigh the risks. But like all drugs, all interventions, there are side effects and toxicities. We have to be aware of those as clinicians, and we need to inform patients. Mm -hmm. The good thing about these drugs, like many others, is that most of the side effects are symptomatic. And so if someone's having symptoms of side effects, you can stop the treatment. Um, that, that's kind of a nice quality of this kind of intervention. 
Well, we look forward uh, to results of that further research. And uh, as with the uh, the National All of Us Project, we certainly hope that it embraces people of all backgrounds, ethnicities, races, uh, when that research is done so we have a good understanding. Uh, but, you know, uh, I have I have to say it's March, and I don't think I'll ever uh, experience March again without thinking of it as the month that the COVID pandemic started three years ago now, a little more uh little more, at least in our rear view uh, mirror, but you've uh, been proactive, I think, about how important it is that uh, people get the COVID vaccine, that they're safe, the treatments are effective. Uh, and I read that you uh, actually uh, reached out and sent an official letter to the Florida Surgeon General uh, about his views being very public that the COVID vaccines could be, quote, harmful. Uh, have you heard from him? Did you get a response? Do you think that there'll be a change of position on that? Um, I I wouldn't expect a change in position. Um, Dr. Ladapo sent us a letter, so we were just responding to his letter. Uh-huh. And his letter um, indicated that maybe we weren't paying enough attention to the side effects, which are recorded in the vaccine adverse events reporting system and other places. We just respond in saying we are paying attention. All effective interventions have side effects and toxicities, and we need to care for people that are unfortunate enough to have those and try to understand them better. But in the case of vaccination for COVID, the vaccines have an overwhelmingly beneficial effect on reduction in death and hospitalization and a modest effect on transmission now. Um, it, and initially, as you may remember, when the vaccines were first developed, they had a huge effect on transmission. But as the variants have come along, that effect is smaller and wanes over time. But the effect on being dead, you know, I'm a cardiologist. I'm used to dealing with life and death. Almost everyone would rather be alive than dead. And you have a free, simple intervention. And we made the point that while we should be aware and pay attention to side effects and toxicities, If we do that and don't talk about the benefits at the same time, we could be misleading people into avoiding getting vaccinated, which would be avoiding a life-saving intervention. I used to spend a lot of time convincing uh, docs to give, uh, to open the artery of people with heart attacks and feeling that if you had someone with a blatant heart attack and you didn't open the artery, um, you were subjecting them to the risk of dying unnecessarily. And I think uh, the same as here. Mm-hmm. So I don't expect Dr. Ladapo to change his view, but we felt it was important mm-hmm. to respond to the letter that he sent us. You know, I want to stay on that theme of uh, misinformation in COVID because you've been very clear that almost no one in the United States should be dying from COVID, but misinformation really is impacting the death toll. Um, and the FDA is more aggressively trying to stop misreporting incorrect social media. I know this is very important to you, uh, but is a more proactive approach needed? And do we need to go after the social media algorithms that spread this information? Because as, as you noted, it's a matter of life and death. We, uh, I think this is one of the most important problems we faced. I've publicly said, I think misinformation is act- actually the leading cause of death in America now, because so many people who die, um, could have done things to change it had they um, gotten better uh, information in a way which motivated them to act in very simple things like taking proven medications to prevent 
uh, cardiac events, for example. Um, and certainly vaccination is another uh, example of the same thing. But this is a very complex and difficult issue. We're in such a different environment now with the um, advent of the internet and the use of um, algorithms and social media. It's just an article last week that really got my attention that demonstrated a social science article that if the headline of an article has a negative word in it, it gets more clicks than the, exactly the same headline without a negative word. And so um, there's also an article that shows that physicians are just as affected in their recommendations by which news outlets they watch as lay people are. So these things are telling us that if we believe that a federal agency like FDA can just make a determination and put out one statement and things will happen, uh, that's a very naive perspective. On the other hand, we, you know, we highly value um, the First Amendment and the right to free speech. So finding where that appropriate middle ground is, um, is really difficult. And I'm not arguing that we know that right now, mm -hmm. but we've got to be um, constantly working on um, trying to get accurate, reliable information to people. And, and here, you know, I'm glad we're on a, uh, whether it's uh, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, pharmacists, we really need um, everyone to pick up uh, their um, activity on this and make it part of every day. Because in the same way I described it for federal agencies, and, uh, you know, I worked at Alphabet between my two uh, FDA stents, mm -hmm. and it's really obvious and if you think that people uh, are coming in just to listen to you for 15 minutes and then go out and do what you say with no other influence, you're out of your mind. <laughs> the minute they're out that door, they're Googling and looking yeah. at uh, other information and hearing from relatives. And if you don't ask them what they're thinking and what their information sources are, you may never know that they didn't do what you, you advised them to do or what you thought they had agreed to do. Um, because they were influenced by some influencer that you'd never heard of. Well, Commissioner, maybe that uh, ties a little bit to this uh, next question that I wanted to ask you, but I've uh, been reading some and really appreciating uh, the health equity lens uh, that the FDC, FDA seems to be taking towards tobacco uh, regulation uh, and prevention uh, efforts and that recognition of just another huge disparity between who is starting uh, to smoke these products uh, at what ages and what communities they come from. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about uh, what we might expect uh, to be hearing more about or seeing over the coming uh, months in terms of labeling and messaging uh, from the FDA about tobacco. Sure, this is, um, this is really a tough one. And, you know, I grew up in uh, South Carolina and North Carolina. Um, I've... Uh, was a cardiologist at one of the busiest hospitals in the Southeast and saw many people die or have um, lifelong disability from tobacco. We're going to lose almost 500,000 Americans this year from tobacco related illness. I, when I came to FDA in 2015, I sort of felt like we understood this problem and we had it under control. It is getting better. We have about half the rate of use of combustible tobacco that we had um, when the um, Center for Tobacco Products was started at the FDA 13 years ago. But we got a long way to go. 
One of the most important areas is uh, methyl um, in tobacco, and we have a rule which has been out in draft form. We've got all the comments, and we hope to finalize that this year that will make it illegal. And there's a very important um, equity sort of double twist to this that we have to all pay attention to. Um, Menthol has been marketed specifically to African-American people um, preferentially, leading to higher rates of use and higher rates of death and disability. Um, But when we make it illegal, um, there's a risk that if we don't handle this appropriately, um, it can bring law enforcement inappropriately to the individual user and not to the manufacturer. So we're working hard um, anticipating this will be finalized to make sure that the enforcement is against the manufacturer, not individuals in the community. Um, We're also dealing with uh, flavors in cigars. Our youth are starting with cigars almost as commonly as with um, combustible to uh, regular cigarettes these days, or even more so. And um, we have on the agenda um, the hope that we'll be able to write a proposed rule that will bring the level of nicotine and tobacco products below the addiction level. Hmm. So you know, it's an interesting question. How many people would use tobacco products if they weren't addicted to nicotine? And I think we may be able to take care of that. So there's a lot coming. Um, it's, it's complicated. Um, and uh, every step is a battle with a bunch of really smart lawyers <laughs> on the other side. Commissioner, let me get in one last question. The president is, and, and I know something it's important to you as well, the president at Stanford University is under fire for allegedly falsifying research data. And drug makers, Amgen and Bayer, uh, have looked at this issue and their findings show as much as 50% of all medical research cannot be reproduced due to flaws in, in research quality. Uh, is it uh, that truly a broken system? Um. My answer to the last part of what you said is no, it's not. A, I don't think it's a broken system. But, um, you know, reproducing science has multiple dimensions to it. But if you ask me, um, is there room for considerable improvement in the integrity of the scientific enterprise for the um, reproduction of research before it's published to make sure it can be reproduced? Because some cases just slightly change the conditions under which the experiment is done and you get a different answer. In other cases, you know, there are temptations to take shortcuts and uh, skip things or copy things over, um, which are really bad. So there's, yeah, I spent a good part of my academic life actually working on these systems, mostly in clinical trials, where blinding and the use of double data entry and audits and um, keeping track of where the data came from um, electronically is a really important part of it. And I think these methods which are very common in uh, industry-regulated applications to FDA. In other words, uh, the industry has much more rigorous standards in that regard. The academia has been a little more free-flowing, which is understandable in a way, because when it's discovery research, it's sort of self-correcting. But we we can do a lot better in terms of uh, producing reproducible research. I've written a good bit about this, and would welcome people to look back at the things that I think about it. It's an important problem we should all pay attention to. 
Commissioner Califf, we thank you for your service uh, to our country. We hope that you'll join us again in the future. And thanks to our audience for joining us. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for updates. The address is chcradio.com. Commissioner, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, and I'm glad we could talk. Take care. All right, thank, thank you, you so much. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. While the world grapples with a global pandemic, public health experts have been simultaneously battling another ongoing health threat. Mosquitoes are considered one of the deadliest animals on Earth, leading to hundreds of millions of illnesses and some 2.7 million deaths per year globally. And diseases such as malaria, dengue fever, and Zika are on the rise. So there's this one mosquito called Aedes aegypti that transmits a range of different viruses to people. They include viruses like yellow fever, dengue fever, chikungunya, Zika, and the consequences can be very dire um, from a loss of life through to um, you know, a crippling uh, social and economic cost. Dr. Scott O'Neill is the director of the World Mosquito Program, which has developed an innovative approach to eradicating the threat. I was particularly interested in this bacterium called Wolbachia. This bacteria is present in up to 50% of insects naturally, but not this one mosquito that transmits all these viruses. When we put the bacterium into the mosquito, the viruses couldn't grow any longer in the mosquito. So we're seeding uh, populations of mosquitoes with our own mosquitoes that contain Wolbachia. We're able to spread the mosquitoes across very large areas very quickly. Once the mosquitoes have it, they're protected from being able to transmit viruses. And when they're protected, the humans are protected as well. Dr. O'Neill's team released the genetically modified mosquitoes into a targeted area, and the results showed a dramatic reduction in human infections. In northern Australia, we um, deployed the Wolbachia over quite large areas, entire cities, and we've seen essentially a complete elimination, 96% reduction in dengue in those cities. We believe if we can scale this intervention across entire cities, we can completely prevent the transmission of diseases like dengue, chikungunya, Zika. The World Mosquito Program is one of six finalists in the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change competition, which awards a $100 million grant to innovative public health interventions. We're hoping that over the next five years, we could bring this technology to protect 75 to even 100 million people. And we would hope within 10 years, we could bring this intervention to 500 million people. The World Mosquito Program, an effective, targeted, genetic engineering approach to eradicating the threat of deadly mosquito-borne pathogens, leading to a dramatic reduction in harm to public health. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and chcradio.com.